Let's go ahead and look at our passage for this morning, which is John chapter 2, 1 through 12. John chapter 2, 1 through 12. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does it have to do with me and you, woman? Jesus asked, my, uh, Jesus asked my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contain 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know, and he did not know uh, where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first and then... After people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, and together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, they stayed there only a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, uh, we are gathered here in your presence to drink and to eat from the banquet that you have set before us this morning. In your word, in Christ, by the power of your spirit, Lord, help us to see you. Help us, Lord, to see your glory in Christ. Help us to, help us to take from your hand the cup that is given to us to fill our souls with comfort and with glory and with wonder and with happiness. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you are new with us this morning, we are walking through uh, the book of uh, John uh, in the Bible uh, in our series that we've titled Good Life. And if you wonder what this, this image is here uh, the whole time, it's supposed to be like the Garden of Eden uh, type deal. Um, and uh, so the book of John is really all about where to find the good life, okay? Um, last week, we saw Jesus uh, recruiting his disciples. He was going around, uh, calling a bunch of dudes to, to come and follow him. One of those guys uh, was a guy named Nathaniel. And this story about the water to wine takes place in his hometown, uh, Cana of Galilee. And Jesus had told Nathaniel, if you remember, to buckle up. Remember that? He said, you ain't seen nothing yet that Nathanael was going to see heaven coming down to earth in the ministry and life of Jesus. And this miracle is that very thing. And John calls this miracle a sign, right? Now, I want to read to you what a, a one New Testament scholar, uh, how he defines the miracles of Jesus, these signs. He says, They are moments when heaven is opened, and when the transforming power of God's love burst into the present world. I like that. So when you see the miracles of Jesus, you need to see God's love bursting into this world filled of darkness and, and, and evil and hatred. Um, in John chapter 2 through 10, Jesus performs seven signs. John loves the number seven. 
In John chapter 1, seven titles for Jesus. John 2 through 10, seven signs that Jesus performs. Um, some scholars call John uh, 2 through 10 the book of signs. And uh, look, at, look at what John says about the purpose for which he's writing this book. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written. He wrote these down for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See that? He wrote these down, told us about them so that we could have the good life by believing in Jesus. And think about this. This was the first miracle that Jesus did, water to wine. Man, you got, you got to, Jesus started this thing off with a bang. Let me tell you, this thing. Um, so the story says there were six stone water pots there that each held 20 to 30 gallons. All right, now I'm no math whiz, but do the math with me. That's 120 to 180 gallons of wine, which equals either 605 or 908 standard-sized bottles of wine today. So, for our purposes this morning, just to simplify it, Jesus, let's just say Jesus produces close to a thousand bottles of wine at a wedding. Is that how you typically picture Jesus? He has a vineyard and he's very generous, or he has a brewery and he's a brewmaster. But he does this because this wedding was about ready to be ruined because the wine ran out. And that's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes is when the wine runs out. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. And you know what? That's a problem. That, is a, that would have been a huge problem in the Jewish culture uh, of the day. It would have, it's not like, you know, uh, the punch bowl uh, got low or they went, ran out of uh, finger foods or uh, appetizers or whatever. No, this would have been a social disgrace, right? Uh, uh, some scholars say that it could have been a sign of uh, bad luck, you know, uh, for this couple. They're starting their, their wedding, uh, their marriage off with bad luck. Uh, other, other scholars say that they could have been charged legally in a court of law for running out of wine uh, during uh, that day. Okay, so here's how we should not think about this miracle. Here's a couple ways that we should not think about this. Um, Jesus is not doing magic tricks here, right? Jesus is not just like bippity-boppity-bam, wine, right? That's not the show-off or anything like that. This is not an inspirational myth without historical reference. It is not just some... Uh, some tale that was told to make us feel all fuzzy and warm, you know, that Jesus did this, right? It is also not mainly about whether or not Christians should drink alcohol. Uh, that is not the purpose of this story. What we should see in this story is a vision of the way the world ought to be. The way that things should be. I work with people that, that struggle with alcohol and drugs all the time. This is my job outside of being a pastor. And I ask them all the time, well, why do you do it? You know? And, and here's, the, here's the common answer. They want to be happy. That's it. They, 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 they want to be happy. Uh, but why do they want to be happy? 
Here's why, because they're empty. All right? And that's exactly what's going on uh, at this wedding. The wine uh, ran out. But we've got to remember, this is miracle is a sign. That's what John said. It's a sign that's pointing to something uh, else. When, uh, after me and my wife, went, we got married, we uh, did our honeymoon in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Anybody ever been to uh, Pigeon Forge? Right? Yeah, so uh, if you go downtown uh, Pigeon Forge in, in, in the downtown, there are all kinds of digital signs. Right? And they're just bright and flashing. Uh, to me, it was so overwhelming. I thought I was going to get in a car accident. There were so many of these flashing uh, signs. And this miracle is like those signs. This miracle is a flashing sign, right? Calling out to us and, and pointing us to uh, something. There's a guy, his name was uh, Augustine. Uh, Augustine or St. Augustine. He was a, was a Christian leader, pastor in the 4th, 5th uh, century. Uh, he was originally from Algeria in northern Africa, and he, he's probably one of the most influential people throughout the history of, of the world. But anyway, uh, he wrote a famous book called The City of God. And during that time, 4th, 5th century, um, the persecution of Christians had basically ended. But prior to that, the Roman Empire and you know, Nero and all these Roman emperors, uh, they were slaughtering Christians for sport and uh, stuff like that. But at this time, many, many people were converting to Christianity, and Christianity became the official religion of the whole empire. But the damage had already been done, and the foundations of the Roman Empire were being uh, shaken. In 410, the Visigoths came in, and they sacked Rome. They, they, they invaded uh, Rome. So the people started questioning, well, hey, we became Christians, and now everything is going south. Well, let's go back to our paganism. Let's go back to our, 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 our pagan gods, uh, because obviously this isn't working. So after shifting to Christianity, Rome was in decline, and Augustine's writing about that. That's what the book, The City of God, is all about. He, he's trying to explain why everything fell apart. And it's, got, it's got great implication for our culture, because our culture is falling apart, if you, you haven't noticed that, by the way. Um, so he talks about the city of God and the city of man. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by city of God and the city of man? Here's what he means. The city of God are the people throughout time who love God, seek to find their happiness in him, and who are humble. And the earthly city or the city of man are people throughout time who love themselves, seek the happiness on their own, and who are proud. So he's talking about two communities within his very own community trying to find happiness in two very different ways. So the whole point he's trying to make in that book is how to be happy. And that's exactly what this miracle is about. This miracle is about how to be happy. It's about the good life. It's about the fact that God wants you to be happy. Right? He didn't create you because he had a void in his life and he needed you to make him happy. No, God created out of this depth this well of happiness and joy. And he thought, man, this is so amazing what we got going on. Let me share this with somebody else. Right? Let, let, I want to share, I want to create an entire universe and people and give myself to them so that they might be happy. This is what Jesus said, John chapter 10, uh, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. He wants you to have a good life. Jesus wants you to be happy but not on your terms. You hear me? He wants you to be happy, but not your way. It's his way. Right? See, 
Doing it your way, that's the city of man. The earthly city. You can only be happy by believing in Jesus and doing exactly what he tells you to do. Isn't that what saved this party? It was going south. This wedding was going, was going south. And Jesus' mom says, do whatever that man tells you to do. And the servant said, aye, aye, captain. And uh, they did whatever uh, uh, Jesus told them to do, save the day. True happiness cannot be found in the fleeting pleasures of trying to enjoy God's gifts without him. You can't enjoy all the stuff in the world and the material things and everything else without God and find true happiness. Look at, look at what Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Coming from a man who had everything, King Solomon. Look what he says here. There's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand. I don't know about you, but the, the older I get, the more stuff like that makes sense to me. If I can just eat and drink and enjoy my work, hey, man, that's a good life right there, isn't it? Just being happy with, uh, with that stuff. But look what he says. He goes on. Because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? You can't enjoy life apart from your, the very one who made you and created you for himself. So let me ask you, are you trying to enjoy life on your own terms? Are you happy? Are you, are you trying to pursue happiness on your own terms, having it your way? If you do that, it's always going to fail. It's always going to, it always leads to being empty. Because you can't get from God's world what can only be found in God himself. Uh, you know what that's like when you try to uh, get from God's world and all of his stuff what can only be found in, in God himself? It's like being at a party with your wine glass empty. Right? It's a, it, here's what it is. It's a wedding reception where the happy marriage is over before it even gets started. And that's why Jesus saves this wedding. Right? It's a sign. This wedding is a sign. This wedding ceremony is a sign that Jesus saves the best for last. He saves the best for last. Let's look at it in verses 6 to 10. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for the Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim, and then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after the people have drunk, I don't like that translation, but anyway, whatever, uh, the inferior but you have kept the fine wine until now. So, in the book of John, you know, you know uh, later on, John chapter 15, Jesus describes himself as, as the grapevine. He says, I'm the, grape, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. If you believe in me, you come to me, you, you become a branch, and then you bear grapes. You produce fruit in, in your life. But here we see that Jesus is the venter. Right? A venter is, is someone who makes the wine. A vine dresser. So here he's the, he, in this story, he's the winemaker. Notice this story says that, go, uh, go back to the previous slide. Uh, the first one. Yeah, there we go. Uh, no, one more. There we go. Look at here. Six stone water jars have been set there for, the Jewish, for Jewish purification. And this is not an accident. It's not an accident that this little detail uh, was included because when Jesus stepped onto the scene of, of human history, 
there was a transition going on. And here's a transition. When God rescued Israel under, with Moses out of slavery in Egypt, and he, and he brought them into the promised land, he prescribed certain ritual washings. Okay? They had this portable tent, temple thing called the tabernacle where God dwelt and where Israel worshipped God. And outside the tent was this huge wash basin. And the priests, before they did their duty, they would come, wash their hands, and they would wash their feet, and then they would go in uh, to the sanctuary in the temple and, uh, and uh, worship God and offer up uh, sacrifices. And all this was meant to show us that the only way to get into God's presence, to have a relationship with him, is to be cleansed from all of our, our sin. And only Jesus can do that. These washings, continually washing, was a sign over and over again, reminding us a symbol right, of the depth of our sin and the fact of our great need of a Savior to wash us clean from all of our sin. The need, our need for a once-for-all washing, cleansing us from our guilt and our shame, our sin. Look at what Hebrews says about this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, look at this, cleanse our consciousness, cleanse us the depth of our being from dead works so that we can serve the living God. So when Jesus uh, uses these water pots and He fills them to the brim with wine, here's what He's saying. You're not going to need that anymore, boys. You're not going to need You can get rid of them pots, right? Because I'm here and I'm going to take care uh, of the washing, uh, of the cleansing. And that's the message of the cross. Jesus went to the cross out of great love and died on the cross so that we could be cleansed of everything that we try to cleanse ourselves from. I'm telling you, that's where a lot of our problems come from in life. We are wracked with shame and guilt because we have sinned against our Creator. We have tried to find happiness in everything else but Him, and that fills us full of shame and guilt. That's why Christ came. That's one of the things I noticed after I became a Christian. I didn't even know I became a Christian when I became a Christian. I had no clue who Jesus was. I didn't know. I just heard the message and said, that sounds true to me, and I need that in my life. You know what happened? All of a sudden, I felt light. All of a sudden, I felt like, I felt like I could fly, like this burden had been lifted off to me, and now I know what happened. Jesus forgave this filthy man you see before you. He washed my conscience clean. He forgave me of everything I've ever done. He purified me. And you know what happened right after that? I felt happy. I went to a party. Everybody's drinking and having a good time. And you know what? I was like, I don't even need no, I don't even need no beer. I don't even need no alcohol. I'm good. I didn't even know what was going on. That's what God does in Christ. And it's no, it's no accident that this miracle takes place at a wedding. A wedding is one of God's favorite symbols throughout the Scripture of His great love for us and the fact that He enters into a binding relationship with His people called a covenant. Just like when, when me and my wife got married, right? We stood before God and witnesses, and we said, I do, I promise to commit myself to you, body, soul, everything, until death do us part. And that's what God does 
with us in Christ. Look at it. Look how Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 62. Beautiful passage. And it's a vision of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. You need to hear, you need to read this and think, Jesus, church, me, you, you will no longer be called deserted. We're not deserted as God's people, and your land will not be called desolate. Instead, you will be called, my delight is in her. That is awesome. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, right? And you, your land will be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And this is what this miracle is a sign of. Right? This is what we need to see in Jesus saving this wedding day. We need to see him saving us. Right? Saving us and coming to be with us forever. And I love this, right? Notice how Jesus doesn't water the wine down. Do you guys, you guys, you guys remember that? The, the head waiter, he tasted it and said, whoa, whoa, this is the fine wine. Right? This is, you got the order flipped here. Right? This is supposed to be uh, the watered down stuff, uh, the, the, the bottom shelf, but you brought out the top shelf. Jesus brought out the top shelf because he saves the best for last. He takes the water and he turns it into the best wine. That's not the way the world works, though. The world constantly waters it down for you. They're constantly trying to peer pressure you. Take a drink of this watered down mess. Take a drink of this watered down stuff. Right? Take a drink of this weak stuff uh, right here. They got watered down religion and spirituality. That's Odul's, by the way. It's non-alcoholic. It's watered down. They got watered down ideas about family and marriage and gender and sexuality. They got watered down sex. Right? That's truly. You know, the little fruity drinks? That's, that's truly. That's not the good stuff. That's not the fine wine. Right? Christians... Christians Christians got the corner on the market there. They got watered-down entertainment, watered-down art. But Jesus didn't have a single problem producing 908 bottles of the best wine. And what is that a picture of? Right? What is that a picture of? Some of y'all caught the reference there, but it's okay. Jesus is showing us here that there is a bottomless. There is God, the happiness that is in in God is utterly bottomless. You can pull the tap and it never runs dry, right? As Psalm 23 says, Psalm 23 says, my cup overflows. And that's true. If you know Jesus, right, or you want to come to receive Jesus here today, you know what's going to happen? Your cup is going to overflow. And what do we see Jesus doing in this story? Filling everybody's cup. You want a bottle? You got it. He gives everybody a bottle. I know this probably creates some problems and questions in your mind. You've got, you got to work it out. Come to community group on Wednesday night. Uh, we see him pouring himself out for other people in this story, don't we? He, Jesus is eternal God in the flesh. He created all the stars, all the galaxies, everything. He's been there forever. And his mom says, hey, Jesus, go take care of this business right here. He says, yes, ma'am. How about that? He created her, by the way. He says, yes, ma'am. We see Jesus caring for this couple's special day. 
What in the world? He actually cared about their wedding and their marriage. He cared about the party. He didn't want it uh, to be ruined. And think about this. Think, think about, what if, what if they had 500 bottles left over? You know what that would have meant? That's money in the bank. Right? When, when you go to a wedding, there's usually a table there, and everybody puts all the gifts and all the, uh, you know, uh, the gift cards and the checks and the presents on that table. This would have been like that. This would have been a, the best gift that anyone gave to this couple, right? Because it would have been cash, cash money if it was left over. I don't know, something to think about. It's all a sign. It's a preview of coming attractions because Jesus told his mom, hey, listen, mom, my hour has not yet come. What's that mean? It means the wine's not ready. It needs to sit a little bit longer. It needs to, it needs to age a little bit longer. If you read the book of John, over and over again, you're going to hear this, my hour, my hour, my hour. And every time Jesus is talking about his hour, he's talking about his death on the cross. And his death on the cross was the ultimate act of selflessness. He sacrificed himself. Jesus Christ said, listen, I didn't come for you to serve me, but I came to serve you and to give my life for you. All right, we see Jesus pouring himself out here. So we see in Jesus' first miracle what he ultimately came to do. So what should our response be? Look at John chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee. He revealed his glory. Look at this. His disciples believed in him, and so should we. All right, but if you, you read the book of John, one of the things you're going to see is that believing is drinking. All throughout the book of John, there's this, these themes of water and wine and eating and, and, and drinking. You see, believing is more like drinking than, uh, than it is like knowing some stuff. Believing uh, in Jesus is not memorizing some stuff about Jesus. It is not uh, having some knowledge about Jesus, but it's drinking of Jesus. You ever wonder why people, when they, when they drink wine, city folk, right, swirl it around, and they, and they, and they smell that, you, you know? They're not doing that because they're bougie or anything like that. Maybe they are. But 80% of how something tastes comes from its aroma. So we, when we believe in Jesus, ought to taste the flavors of who Jesus is. We ought to taste him with our soul Taste him with our hearts. All that he's done for us in his death, his burial, his resurrection ought to be infused into our being, the core of who we are, and change us. It ought to change us. You know, there, there's a difference in uh, how wine tastes, by the way. Uh, and Jesus saves the best wine for last, right? This is not, uh, uh, this is not like a $7 bottle of stuff here. Right, and this is this is the, the Bordeaux, right? This is the uh, the Tempranillo. This is the Grenache. This is the good stuff, right? There there is a difference, right? And uh, you know the flavor of wine uh, uh, is affected by all kinds of things. This is all this talk of wine is making some of y'all uncomfortable. It's okay. Nine hundred eight bottles. You know, I talked to Jesus about it, but um. Uh, you know, we have some oak wine barrels in the back, uh, back here. And no, just in case you're wondering, there's no wine in them. We're not going to uh, tap into that uh, after the service or anything. 
But oak barrels add flavors to wine. Spice, caramel, vanilla, cedar. And what I'm saying to you is the wine of Jesus, his life, his death, his victory over it all ought to flavor your life. It ought to flavor your life. Remember Augustine, his book, The City of God. He said there are only two ways to pursue happiness. Here's what that means. There are only two types of people in this room. There are only two types of people out here in our community. See, there's a community of God in our community, and then there's a community of man in our community. You're either finding your happiness in God and being selfless, or you're finding your happiness in something else and being selfish. Um, I found an article with this title, Deconstructing the Kingdom of Self. It was written by a guy named uh, Paul Tripp. He's a biblical counselor, a Bible teacher. And uh, he, he, he says there that he, he's got, he shares five questions to give you eyes to see the deceptive kingdom of self. Now, I tweaked these a little bit and uh, made them five flavors. Right, five flavors of a selfless life. You guys want to hear about them? All right, okay. Number one is the flavor of others' focus. Others' focus. When you are truly happy in Jesus, you are freed up to sacrifice for the good of others without expecting anything in return. That's others' focus. Let me say it again. When you are truly happy in Jesus, you freely sacrifice for the good of others without expecting anything in return. You don't want to know why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. He freely sacrificed for you, not expecting you to earn it, never wants you to pay it back. It's all grace. It's all love. All you got to do is receive it. A selfish person is always thinking about what's in it for me. How is this going to affect me and what I got going on? A selfless person is always thinking, how is this going to affect you? How is what I believe and what I'm doing affecting uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ? All right, number two is the flavor of self-examining. I woke up this past week with something in my eye, and I'm telling you, I could, bar I could barely see, right? I, I was trying to I get up and try to read my, my Bible, and I had to, like, pull my eyelid open just to be able to, like, see. And after about an hour, it went away, but... Um, I immediately thought about what Jesus said about having a log in your own eye. Jesus told the story about, hey, listen, don't, don't be judging people uh, uh, trying to get the speck out of someone's eye when you've got this big honking uh, log in your own eye. See, a selfless person knows that they are both sinful and saved in Jesus. So they are cool taking an honest look at their own life and then repenting. Right? This means that they are wide open for you to criticize them or to rebuke them, and they'll repent of it. But a selfish person, on the other hand, is constantly trying to brush it away, stiff arm it, get it out of here. Right? I don't want to hear that, and then blaming it on something else. Well, it's that person's fault. It's Joe Biden's fault, or it's this, per this thing's fault, or my body made me do it, or whatever. Number three is the flavor of being externally satisfied. And here's what I mean. A selfless person is content in Jesus. It means that they are finding their happiness in him and not in themselves. 
Let me ask you a question. Are you happy this morning? Are you happy? Are you content? Are you at peace? Is there a quietness in your soul or is there restlessness, discontent, lack of satisfaction in your life? Listen here. I'm not telling you this to beat you down. I'm telling you this because I want you to be happy. If Jesus wants you to be happy, well, so do I. Right? But here's the deal. It ain't going to happen your way. If you find yourself unhappy here this morning, you know what what it's time for? Time to switch it up. Switch up the game. Go down a different road. Change. Do something different. You see, content people don't need anything from you. Content people do not need anything from you because they've already got it all in Jesus. And they can freely give to you. They are the most selfless people. And you know what? When you got it, when you got Jesus in your life, you want to help people get happy. Right? You, this is what, if you look, we'll get to it in the book of John, but Jesus says that this eternal life will well up with inside of us and flow out of us. It'll be rivers, streams of living water flowing out of us. Number four is the flavor of being reliant. And what I mean here is you can rely on them. Selfless people are reliable. Selfless people are not scared to lovingly meddle in your life. You know what? Because they don't care. They don't care if, if, if someone gets mad at them. They don't care if someone rejects them. They don't care what people think about them. They don't care if they're going to be shamed or not. They care about you. And they will lovingly interfere in your life. And you know what? They say, bring it on. Bring it on. I want you to do the same in my life. They open their life up and they say, I'm willing for you to come. And if there's anything that's not biblical, Christ-like in my life, will you please let me know? Because I want to be happy. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 3. And uh, our, our community group, the guys from our group, are getting together this afternoon. And we're, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, so it was fresh on the brain. Look what it says. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other. Other translations say exhort one another. Daily, I would still call today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Now, the Holy Spirit is commanding us to submit to this. Right? So what would that look like? What would it look like to submit to God according to this verse right here? I think it would look like taking responsibility for each other. Taking responsibility for each other's um, happiness, relying on each other, and encouraging each other. We need help to be happy. We can't do it on our own. We need people to help us watch out for ourselves and say, hey, you know what? That's the... That's the that's the community of man right there. You see what you're doing? Community of man. God's got something better for you. Right, and that ain't it. All right, number five. I'm moving. Uh, it's the flavor of being rule-oriented. Rule-oriented. Whose rules are you obeying? It's not a question of whether or not you're going to obey somebody or obey rules, right? It, it is the question of which rules. Not whether, but which. Which rules? Whose rules are you obeying? Who are you listening to? Who are you following? 
See, selfless people listen and obey Jesus. Isn't that what we see in this story? Isn't that what saved the day? Jesus' mom says, do whatever he tells you to do. And they went out and they did it. And this is the only way to happiness. The only way to true happiness is believing in Jesus and obeying Jesus. Let me end with this. What day was it when this miracle took place? Think about it. It was on the third day. On the third day, Jesus did this. And remember, this miracle is a flashing sign. It's a flashing sign. Matter of fact, this sign has been flashing for a long time. From the very beginning, on the third day. It was on the third day when Abraham sees a place where the Lord provides a substitute sacrifice for his son Isaac. It was on the third day when Jonah was brought up out of the belly of the fish. It was on the third day when God created the very vines that make wine possible. And it was on the third day that Jesus' lifeless body began to breathe. And that man got up and he walked out the grave because he wanted you to be happy. And it was all, all this is a promise of his great commitment because he resurrected and he ascended to heaven and he will return finally and fully to be united to his people. That is his church. Look at it. Revelation chapter 20, 1, verse 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. What is, who is that? What is that? The church. I'll prove it to you. Look, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for a husband. See, the bride of Christ is his people, the church. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them, and they will be his people, his peoples from all nations. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. And I'm going to tell you what, on that day, the wine will never run out. And that's what we respond to now.